campus of Yale University, this is To Live and Dialogue in LA. I'm Aaron Tracy. On the pod today, Andrew Lincheski. So the reason I have a TV writing career is because of Andrew. Andrew created the show Royal Pains for the USA Network, which became a monster hit for them and ran for eight years. I remember walking with Andrew through the halls of USA when the show was at its peak. And I remember telling a friend after, only half joking, that it had to be what it was like walking with Paul McCartney through Apple Records in the 60s. Execs all came out of their offices to give Andrew a hug, to say hello. It was really like being with a celebrity. Now, in the show's first year, I was pretty new to Hollywood, and I landed a meeting about being a writer on it. I didn't end up getting the job, though Andrew blames forces out of his own control for that. But Andrew did like my writing, and a few years later, he asked me if I'd want to work together on a new idea. So I jumped at that, of course, and Andrew slowly started overseeing me on pilots that I would write, and eventually we started writing together as partners. So in the past few years, Andrew and I have sold pilots together to five different studios, and we got our show, The Tap, made last year. It was filmed in New York, produced by one of our heroes, Rob Reiner, who I have a feeling that we're going to talk about. Um, So I'm biased here, but in my opinion, Andrew is the most generous, kindest, most supportive and giving person I've ever met in this business. And he's amazing at his job. You know, not only is he a really great, thoughtful writer, as I'm sure you'll hear when he starts talking about craft, but he's a genius at navigating this really tricky business. So much of TV writing is dealing with agents and managers and studio and network executives, actors, directors, assistants, consultants, and the most unpredictable of species, the non-writing executive producer. And that's all before you even go into production. That's just the pitching writing phase. Andrew thrives on navigating those waters and he's great at it. So when we were in production on our pilot last year, Andrew was the showrunner, which means he had a million things to do at all times. But one great example of how he works, I'll never forget this, is that after leaving the production offices in Yonkers one afternoon, we went and scouted Manhattan hotels for our actors to stay in during the shoot. That's how detail-oriented Andrew is, right? And how important it is for him that everyone in his orbit is comfortable and feels supported, all the way down to looking at hotel rooms for them to stay in for a month. I would be completely lost in this business without Andrew. We do a lot of stuff together, and we also have our own individual stuff. But I don't think there's a single project I have that wouldn't be better if Andrew was involved. So here's Andrew. And this is super weird to be talking to him in such a formal setting with a microphone, by the way. So bear with me. All right. Hey, Andrew. Hi, Aaron. How are you? <laughs> I'm good. Uh, first question, just curious, do you feel uh, guilty at all that you are my closest collaborator and one of my closest friends, but you've turned down my invitation to come to campus three years in a row now? No, not at all. Not at I all. Could, I couldn't feel better about my decision. Is that because you're kind of a psychopath who doesn't feel guilt? or is there I think you're thinking of sociopath, but suddenly I'm confused as to what department this uh, speaker series <laughs> is focused on. Um, I, uh, you know, I believe that we give back to the community from whence we came. So um, I spend plenty of time uh, at UCLA giving back to that community. You spend plenty of time at Yale giving back to yours. Um, And here I am uh, helping you do your thing. When did you contribute to uh, to my lecture series at UCLA just to to help my memory? All right, I'll do that right now. Um, For all the viewers out there, listeners out there, you can view uh, one of Andrew's speeches at UCLA. You gave like a commencement address and it's up on YouTube, I think, right? That was a commencement address, yes, com- separate and apart from um, from lecturing there. But uh, All right, you do both. But thank you, you for the plug. And you are, you also uh, you met your wife at UCLA when you were doing a lecture, right? Oh, getting personal quickly. <laughs> I did indeed. I did indeed. That's I, uh, she I was, was a, a guest speaker, and she came up to you afterwards. I love that. That, that's my version of the story. If you have her on next week, she might tell you <laughs> a, a dueling version, but right. I'm sticking with mine. All right. Maybe we will. I would like to talk to Shira. Um, so I'm just going to jump into, I have so many questions. Um, 
you had your own hit show on the air after only one season of experience in a writer's room, uh, which is, you know, very, very, very unusual. My, I guess my half question season. is half season. So yeah. what was that show? Un, undeclared? Was it? What was yeah, it? Close. You see undercover. You see undercover. Uh, I'm glad to see you did your homework. Though, preparing <laughs> for this interview. It's very flattering. Uh, you did half a season. What happened? You got fired or the show got canceled? Um, the show got canceled, unfortunately, after just the 13 episode order. And I also came in a little bit late, uh, like a few episodes in is when huh. my then writing partner and I got hired and brought onto the staff. So it was a really short lived experience. Huh. Um, but, uh, but you know, as you know, you can learn a lot very quickly in a, in a writer's room because of how immersive and intense the, uh, the process and the pace are. Right. So, so you did that half season, you learned a lot, you were thrown into it. And then how many years until you got Royal Pains on the air? Eight years. Is that right? Yeah, that is right. Oh, man. So, okay. So during that eight years, um, what the hell were you doing? I was writing a lot of stuff that people had no interest in reading and pitching a lot of stuff that uh, people had no interest in hearing. Um, and I was getting by however I could. I was able to find, um, you know, a couple projects with indie producers where they, um, you know, were looking for a writer to commission um, to write a pilot. Um, so oh, you're getting paid. I got paid, um, you know, modest amount, but enough to cover my rent. But, you know, it's, it's a weird thing to write something um, that's paid, but yet still on spec, because after you're done writing it, then the independent producer still has to go out and sell it to a network, um, which did not happen with uh, any of the things that I wrote. But, um, you know, over that time, I was really trying to hone my craft and, um, and build relationships. And, um, you know, one of the things that I took away from my staff experience was that, uh, for me personally, it was going to be, um, more motivating to just want to create my own show. Um, though I knew that meant it would take me longer to get where I wanted to go rather than, you know, going the conventional route, which is, um, rising up through the ranks of staffing. Right. Um, I was open to that, but I, I had really set my sights on, um, creating my own show because, you know, I saw that it's, it's just that much more difficult. Um, I think for me at least to write characters well, when they're not characters that have sprang from my own mind and experience. Right. That's interesting. I, I guess I didn't realize that you had that, you had that goal in mind. Um, when you got Royal Pains picked up then, um, you were now in charge of a writer's room. Uh, I guess you certainly made a lot of relationships and I'm sure you learned a lot and you honed your craft as, as you said for eight years, but how did you actually know what you were doing in terms of running a writer's room on the first season? I most certainly did not, um, did not know what I was doing. Um, uh, those things that, that I described having honed and learned were really about writing, but um, as you know, running a show is completely different from writing a show. Um, so that's where my friend, your uh, guest from last week, mm -hmm. um, comes into the picture, Mr. Michael Rausch. Um, you know, it was interesting because after the pilot got picked up to series, um, the network USA, who you know well, sure. um, which had had some mixed experiences in pairing seasoned showrunners with new creators um, was willing to try something new. In fact, they said to me they were inclined to let me run it on my own in wow. season one. And uh, I told them that was very flattering, but um, I needed to really make sure they understood um, the extent to which I had no idea what the hell I was talking about. Um, so I, I felt strongly that I not only needed but wanted uh, someone to come in and really mentor me and show me the ropes. Um, and I met with five candidates for that job. And it's a weird thing when you're essentially hiring, you know, kind of your own boss. Um, and I met with four people in a room in LA and Michael, um, who is based in New York, uh, he and I met over a video conference and within the first, I'd say 60 seconds of our video conference, um, chat, I just felt a connection, um, much stronger than anything I felt sitting in a room with an hour sitting in a room for an hour with any of those other people. Um, I love that. By the way, so Michael's podcast, he told a story about how when he got his first show on the air, it was the exact same situation. He had never really been in a writer's room before. And so he ended up sitting down and interviewing, you know, showrunners also um, and had a similar experience where he met someone he just really clicked with. 
Yeah, um, that was John Worth. Right. Um, his, his, you know, John to Michael was uh, Michael to me. Right. Um, and uh, and it's an incredibly, it's, it was the most important decision I made um, in the entire run of the series because um, it just shaped everything that came after it. And you know, often even when those relationships are successful, um, they kind of end after a year or two when you know the creator kind of um, feels like they they've got the knack of it and um and the seasoned showrunner kind of moves on to the next gig but michael and i had had such a bond and uh, worked so well together and both just so enjoyed um producing the show that in season two so in season one he was more of a mentor and a supervisor and in season two we became full and equal partners and we remained that way for the entire run of the series right um, and it feels like USA Network is one of the few networks that actually um, empowers uh, sort of young or new writers in that way. I mean, they let Sam Esmail run Mr. Robot also, I think, without – I think he had made a feature, but he hadn't had a ton of experience in TV, if any. Right. So, you know, remember, this is um, almost a decade ago. Um, it got picked up to series – Royal Pains got picked up to series um, – in January of 2009, it was kind of, we got the news in December, but we were told to keep it a state secret until after the holidays. Um, but you're talking about a much different TV landscape back then mm -hmm. when, uh, where it was really much more built around, um, experienced and, uh, and known quantities. Um, the showrunners were the people that, you know, were the center of, of, um, the series universe. And as time has gone on and you've seen this explosion of outlets and this desperate need for content, um, you know, part of that need has been filled with, uh, lots of new voices. Um, you know, I think with mixed results, but certainly with some spectacular results, you just pointed to one example, yeah. Sam and, and Mr. Robot. Um, and there are only so many showrunners to go around. So I think at a certain point, you know, these networks were in the position of not really being able to, to have a choice other than to gamble on the creator. And, you know, sometimes it works um, amazingly well. And sometimes, um, you know, you're kind of shown um, a real uh, lesson in why experience is so important. Right. Um, I want to ask you a little bit about research. Um, you're really great at finding sort of experts for us to talk to on all of our different projects. Uh, I think you found our CIA consultant on the tap when you were at the gym. Is that right? I, that you make it sound a lot sexier. <laughs> Did than you it pick really him up was. at the gym? Yeah, I don't. I don't work out at the Langley Fitness <laughs> Center. Um, I, it was a friend at the gym who knows a guy who used to work at the CIA. Who um, I don't know, Aaron. Do we disclose his name yeah, on, it's on to broadcast? You. I, huh? I, that's. I'm. I'm not going to be responsible for that decision. <laughs> okay, let's tread carefully. But uh, you know who I'm talking about, uh -huh. um, and you can tell all your listeners offline who that is. But. Uh, but yeah, I believe very, very strongly in the value of um, human research, which is to say having people you can talk to that can offer firsthand accounts um, of their experience in the world that you're depicting in your show. So um, on Royal Pains, I had um, an emergency room physician who um, was working with me. With the greatest the name of all time? Irv Danish. Irv Danish. Dr. Irv Danish. Um, a wonderful human being, an incredibly talented physician, um, and an amazing storyteller. Uh, he just had he had a knack for it right away, um, and that was enormously helpful to me. And and we were um, speaking from the earliest stages of me writing the pilot, um, and then I wanted to have him on set um, during the production of the pilot, and then he became a part of the show and series. And we eventually had pretty much at all times um, a doctor in the writer's room full-time, a doctor on set full-time, at least when we were shooting medical scenes. And similarly, you know, in, in a show like The Tap, um, should I talk about The Tap or your uh, listeners are already well acquainted with? All I do is talk about The Tap. Okay. So, um, so with The Tap, you know, particularly because um, we were doing a show not just about the CIA, but about the CIA in 1969, uh, I think you and I both agreed that, you know, we, we really needed to not rely uh, just on historical accounts found online or in books, but um, try and talk to somebody who had a real understanding of the institution. And, and what's amazing about the guy, guy we found is he not only understands the tradecraft, but he's sort of a CIA historian. So, um, you know, I think about some of those 
scenes, um, the CIA scenes in the tap, and imagine you know what they would have looked like had we not had him or someone like him to lean on, and uh, it makes me scared. Right. Yeah, I, and also it just it's so often such basic stuff, you know, because you and I spend our life in a, such a different field, you know, reading and writing, but oftentimes we just miss one plus one. So, for instance, I, I always use the term CIA agent. And that was the first thing that he would yell at us about. There's no such thing as a CIA agent, as a CIA officer. And so that kind of stuff is just indispensable. Totally. Or that, that you know, torture scene we had, um, uh -huh. poor Trend In, what, right. what, what we put him through thanks to our CIA consultant. <laughs> um, you know, I, I think had we not had him, so the scene, as you may have already talked about, is no. th this guy um, who's being kept in this sort of CIA um, safe house, and they have an empty pool that they're using as a torture room, and inside the empty pool, the swimming pool, um, are two boxes. One is um, like, you know, 150 degrees, and the other is like zero degrees, and they're just moving him back and forth from freezing and shivering to, um, to just sweating and overheating back and forth, back and forth. And without him, I don't know, we either would have come up with something that was um, not that interesting, um, something that was all too familiar, we've seen it a million times before, something that just wasn't true to the way they did business in 1969. Right. How much do you think is for us, I mean, obviously the, the greater percentage, but how much do you think is also to make the studio and the network sort of comfortable that we have um, someone who's going to keep this true to life? You know, with our with our project with Lionsgate right now, we have a fantastic... Um, you know, Yale professor as our consultant. And I, she's been really, really helpful for us. But I think, I don't know, there's, it, it also feels like it makes the studio more comfortable that this isn't just two guys who are making stuff up. Yeah, I think they're uh, wise to recognize the value in people like, like this. Mm -hmm. um, you know, uh, assuming that, that they're, um, you know, bona fides check out. And, uh, you know, in the, in, in the instance of our Hoover project at Lionsgate, you're, you're talking about someone who is not just a consultant, but also an author of a book that we're using as IP for the series. Mm -hmm. So that brings a whole other um, kind of, you know, dimension of value. But when you're talking about someone who's strictly serving as a consultant, you know, I think more than ever, um, TV is really um, looked at um, for authenticity in the world that it, that it depicts, it brings to life on screen. Right. And, and I think that, you know, writers can be as um, dogmatic as they want about, um, you know, research and research and research. But at the end of the day, there is just, I find, little substitute for talking to somebody who's actually done it with his own two hands. Totally. And, you know, I always recommend this to students, and I wish I did more of this myself. Um, when you, whenever you're researching a new world, something that you're not an expert in, you can just pick up the phone and call someone. And more often than not, they're going to be happy to talk to you. Um, this is something that, you know, any writer can do, someone who's just writing on spec. If you just call and explain that, you know, you're, you're writing um, something that will hopefully be on TV someday, and you just want to pick their brain about it a little bit, whatever the subject is, people are thrilled to talk about what they do. Um, never, almost never fails. I think that's absolutely true. What's interesting is, you know, I think the relationship needs to be symbiotic. I think that the, the beauty of having, of the luxury of having um, a consultant who's, you know, really part of your team, who's on staff, part-time or full-time, is I, I think it's as important for them to get to know your world as it is for you to get to know theirs. Right. So on Royal Pains, we had um, a dermatologist, I don't know if Michael told this story, but... No. Um, we had a dermatologist uh, who's a fantastic doctor and um, was, you know, trying to transition from being a doctor to being a writer and is now actually a really successful full-time writer on a hit NBC show. Um, but uh, his background was in dermatology, and he came onto a show that was about a concierge doctor who, you know, practices all types of medicine. And we said, okay, great. I think he joined us probably season three or season four. Um, and we said we'd love to, you know, just mine all the great um, medical stories that, that you have and that you've lived and breathed. Um, and uh, the next thing we knew, we looked up and it was, you know, seven or eight episodes later and we realized, oh my God, we have a storyline centering on a rash in every single one of these episodes. <laughs> um, and we had to sit down and say, you know, Jeff, these, these um, skin uh, storylines are great, but, you know, we need to make sure we're having, um, you know, a certain amount of variance 
um, and differentiation because it's TV and viewers don't want to watch the same thing week after week. Um, so that was an interesting sort of, you know, moment for him yeah. to learn about TV as much as we were learning from him about medicine. Totally. Um, I want to talk a little bit about, uh, about actors. You know, you mentioned the tap, uh, we had, a, you know, a truly great cast that we worked with, um, last year. I, I know that you know you, you developed a great bond with them. You're still close to a, a bunch of cast members from the tap. You're still very close with your cast from Royal Pains. Um, can you talk a little bit about you know, working with actors as it relates to your writing? I mean, I assume when a show goes for eight years and you know your whole cast, you begin what? You begin writing toward them. You begin having their voices in your heads and and writing for their strengths and weaknesses. Yeah, yeah, I think that's true. I mean, look, uh, there's the part of it that for me. Um, kind of, I bring to the show experience with me, which is, I, I love actors, I so respect what they do, um, in part because I know I can never do it. I, I could never get up in front of, um, you know, 200 crew members and four cameras and um, and start performing. Um, so I, I, I come to the table with that amount of respect for what they do. Um, and on top of that, um, you know, you, you end up collaborating with them so closely in the day-to-day -day process of making a show that it really does become a partnership. Um, I remember, you know, saying by the end of the series when we were talking about how the show was going to end, you know, telling the cast that, um, that the characters were now theirs as much as they were mine or Michael's or anyone else's. Um, and, uh, and, you know, there were decisions, both very big and very small, that um, we look to each other on. And oftentimes they had a better sense, as crazy as it is to say as a writer, they had a better sense um, of what was natural or what was consistent to everything the character had done than, than I would. Because, you know, as a writer and showrunner, you have to keep your eye on a million different things. These actors are predominantly focused on their character and pretty much little else. So it gives them a real laser focus on um, the through line of the character over the course of the series and what the character tends to do and tends not to do and yeah. where the character might have room to grow and not. Yeah, um, that was one of my favorite parts of the tap when it really, at some point, maybe halfway through filming or maybe even, you know, for, for some actors um, just, you know, during, during pre-production, but when they would um, take complete ownership of the character and all of a sudden that character felt like it belonged to them. Um, and you know, they, they weren't obnoxious about it. They were still uttering the lines that we wrote. It wasn't like they were off improving, but that kind of ownership and feeling like, you know, the way they would carry themselves just, it, it made the whole thing such a great experience. And you, I don't know, I, I certainly felt a lot more uh, confident about the project when that started to happen. Yeah. And you want to see that. You want to see actors who are really investing in the character's journey and starting to develop a really strong instinct for, you know, when the character turns left and when the character turns right. right. Um, and the other thing I should say is that, you know, I, I've been extraordinarily lucky um, twice now, once on Royal Pains and the second time with you on the tap in just um, working with actors who are also amazing human beings. Yeah. Um, and I think that I, I think luck is a big part of it, but I have to say it's very important to me during the casting process um, to really try and find those kinds of people. Obviously, it starts with, can they give you what you wrote on the page? But um, a close second to that is, is this someone that you're going to want to spend 14 hours a day on set with, hopefully for eight years? Um, because um, if they're not, then the day can get even longer. Yeah, I, I remember that. I mean, you know, as showrunner on, on the project, you were definitely very... Um, you know, you were very aware of who was getting along with who and making sure that, it, uh, you know, the set felt like a very comfortable, an offset felt like a very comfortable, supportive place. I remember that being very important to you. It was, and I, I brought that, that want from my experience on Royal Pains, which was right. really like, you know, summer camp for a big extended family for eight years. And um, it, it, you know, it's, again, the, life is too short and the days are too long um, uh, to, to work with people that, that you know, uh, make things harder rather than easier. And, and um, we had an amazing group on Royal Pains. We brought, uh, as you know, some of those uh, crew members to the tap. And um, we brought a lot of new people who were, um, you know, just plugged seamlessly into that dynamic. And, uh, uh, you know, obviously the result wasn't what we wanted, but um, I know we agree we had a great time making the pilot with those people. Yeah. We also had a very funny situation in that one of our lead actors um, was the reigning winner of the best screenplay Oscar, Tom McCarthy. So, I mean, talk about like intimidating to write for the guy who just won 
best screenplay. Um, I remember him suggesting changes, you know, just sort of very, you know, minor changes to his dialogue on a scene one day. And it's like, <laughs> you and I looked at each other like, yeah, he, he might know what he's doing here. Yeah, I've, I've certainly never had an experience like that before. Not just best screenplay, but also directed right. the movie that won best picture. Right. Um, and, you know, within the, the, the preceding 12 months. Um, and, and to your point, um, it's a good thing that we wrote it before we cast him because having cast him and then had to write to him, I think would have been, um, totally. it, it would have made us probably overthink things a little bit, but you know, to his credit, um, what a talent, but also what a guy, I mean, I, if you think about guys in that position coming off that kind of accomplishment, um, and recognition, uh, they certainly could have been a lot less gracious about throwing their opinions around. And he really was an actor on that set and incredibly respectful of us as writers. And mm -hmm. one of the reasons I love him so much. Totally. So um, I want to now play a scene from the Real Pains pilot, uh, you know, the show we've been talking about that you created. It doesn't need a lot of setup. Um, it's early in the show. Our hero, Hank, uh, you know, he's in his underpants, he's looking a mess, he's watching old movies in the middle of the day, crying his eyes out at, I think it's, what is it, Field of Dreams? or uh, mm -hmm. And so he's clearly hanging on to the bottom rung. Um, he's a doctor who was recently fired by his hospital and feels like his life is over. Uh, with this scene, his fiance is standing over him, having just walked in. So let's play the clip. That's why we search, apply, interview. It's proven technique. Yeah. I've tried it. The Gardner family managed to pull a few strings and have me blackballed at every level one trauma center in New York. What about a level two or a level three? Thanks to all these lawsuits and countersuits, no institution will touch me. I can't get work as a school nurse. Just remember one thing. You put us here, not me. You're the one who let a billionaire hospital trustee die on your day off. I mean, Jesus Christ, Hank. This is not what I signed on for. I wanted to spend on florists and caterers and photographers, not attorneys. I think we need to postpone. I'll see your postponement and raise you. I saved the kid. You've hashed and rehashed every excruciating detail of this nightmare over and over again. But the one thing you never mention is that I saved the goddamn kid. If anyone asks, that's why we called it off. Since the day I met you, Hank, you have never been able to accept the things you can't change. Right. That's why we called it off. Damn, that's a good scene. Thank you. I've never listened to it before without seeing it. The sound design was was really good, actually, wasn't it? With the cars, the New York City cars outside. Well, you know that wasn't over. I mean, we had amazing sound people on the show, but I remember having that specific conversation um, on set because the horns and um, you know the cabs, everything else. It was just the sirens. It was all driving me crazy. Hmm. Um, and I remember, um, you know, just kind of being urged by the director to embrace it and, um, and, you know, kind of own it as a part of this environment. Cause of course it's, you know, Brooklyn, it's New York city, but also, um, as being, um, this sort of chaotic, um, backdrop to what was going on emotionally in the scene between the characters. And uh, while I normally am, am really anal about isolating um, the dialogue and, and shutting out as much noise as possible, um, this is one example where I actually saw the wisdom of, of that advice. Yeah, no, it worked well. So do you remember, it was a while ago, obviously, but do you remember writing the scene? I do. Um, it's interesting. I, I remember the real challenge in the scene being not writing the hero's Hank's dialogue, but but writing Nikki's. Um, it was a really tricky scene because it was, um, you know, early in the pilot. So obviously everything I was doing was crucial to establishing um, Hank as the heart of the show. But but you know this was so important because I had to walk a very fine line with Nikki. If 
Um, she was if she was too soft on him, then you weren't going to get um, the anger and the rage that was ultimately going to motivate Hank to make this big life change. Um, and at the same time, if she was too harsh um, and not at all empathetic, not at all human, then it would reflect on Hank because you would wonder why is this the woman he was with in the first place. Um, so it was really about, you know, kind of making sure that, that, uh, that I, I walked that line in the dialogue and then keeping a close eye on it um, when we shot it. And Pascal Hutton, who played Nikki, um, didn't need much kind of guidance because she, she really nailed that line also. It's really interesting. I mean, I think that's so often something we forget to do, that we, we are always paying attention to the hero of the scene's point of view or the hero of the show's point of view. But it's also really important to remember to go through every scene and take the characters that aren't necessarily part of our main ensemble and make sure that they have a very clear point of view too because they're all the stars of their their own TV shows and their own movies. They have to be. A hundred percent. And, you know, um, having said that, I, you know, this is often my experience writing for Mark. He just, he, he's such an extraordinary actor that he, he honestly makes the writing look much more effortless than it really is. Um, I, he just, he finds the moments. He understands um, not just the intent behind every line, but the subtext between the lines. And I remember this, you know, Mark and I had been friends before the show, but this was our first time working together. And um, this, I don't remember where this day fell on the schedule, but um, but I don't think it was uh, too late in the schedule. I think it was pretty early on. And this is one of those moments just watching him act where I was like, holy shit. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if we have a show here, but if we do, then he's the reason why. It's also, I mean, I, you know, it was early on in terms of your relationship with him and writing for him, but the dialogue just feels so right for the character and for the actor right away. I mean, that moment when he says, you know, I'll see your postponement and raise you. I mean, it just works so incredibly well. And you feel like, you know, this character just from the, the way he talks right off the bat. Completely. Um, and then, uh, and then I think, you know, Mark and I, um, we, we kind of just shared a lot of sensibilities. Um, I think as, you know, kind of guys of similar ages from New York. Um, and, uh, and it was also great to have a shorthand with him through the writing. Like I could write a line knowing how I would say it and without having to speak to him about it, he would read it exactly how it sounded in my head. Um, and that was really cool and fun. Um, but, uh, but, you know, what was interesting about that moment was um, I remember we tried it a couple different ways and, you know, kind of the, the, the little nuances that you don't think about in the writing of a scene that suddenly become an endless array of options when you're shooting the scene um, never cease to amaze me. So when, when, you know, we actually got to shooting the moment, the question that presented itself was when Hank says that line, um, I'll see your postponement and, and raise you, what is her reaction? Is she shocked? Is she devastated? Is she relieved? Um, and we tried it each of those ways. And I think what we found was, you know, um, something that, that kind of combined a little bit of all three. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, that's, that's just the magic of actually making something as opposed to just, you know, sitting with it in your head or on the page. Right. No, that's smart. Um, I also really liked it because it's so clearly your voice. Um, you know, that line, you've never been able to accept the things that you can't change. I've seen you write versions of that line in so many different scripts that we've worked on together. Um, that just feels like a very sort of you line. And it's nice to see that, you know, like you said, you had, you had been sort of honing your craft for the eight years before you filmed this episode, but it, it really feels like you had, had certainly by this point found your voice as a writer. Um, well, thank you. Um, I do love that line. I can't take credit for it. It is stolen from um, uh, the uh, AA. Right, right. Um, yes, mantra. Uh-huh. Um, but, but adopting it is, you know, a choice. It was a choice. This was the first time I used it. I can't remember. Maybe you can remind me um, where else I used it other than the tap, but I definitely remember uh, plagiarizing it for the tap. Um, yeah. And then I think ultimately, did we, did we cut the A side but keep the B side in the tap? I don't remember anymore. We went through so many drafts. We did indeed. Um, but uh, yeah, there are, you know, um, there are, and I think when I did it in the tap, I was conscious of it, but I also think there are times when you kind of, you know, reuse lines or ideas that are really close to you and you don't even know you're doing it. Yeah. Have you ever seen that um, 
the video someone the mashup of Sorkin lines that someone put yeah, together. I was just thinking of the same thing. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's you know, it's one guy who's written hundreds of hours of TV, so he's using the same phrases in Sports Night and The West Wing and Newsroom and A Few Good Men. I mean, of course he is. If if he wasn't using some of the same phrases, we would wonder what the hell was going on. Yeah, especially you know at, at his. Um, rate of speed with dialogue right. uh, you know he, he goes through 50 times as much dialogue in a one-hour script than we do right um so uh, yeah statistically it'd be, it'd be impossible for not to, for him not to start repeating lines All right. um so i want to ask you you know so rail pains went off the air we made the tap last year um you've got several different projects in various states of development uh we've got a bunch together the life of a of a tv writer in development you know is mostly writing pitches it's it's not writing scripts um so this is something I always, you know, sort of think about, worry about. Um, how do you keep uh, the writing muscle strong when you're working in development, or do you not worry about the atrophying at all? Um, great questions. You absolutely should always be worrying about that, and you should absolutely always be doing writing of some kind, even if it's writing for yourself, even if it's writing that you never expose to, um, you know, your agent or the marketplace or your collaborators. Um, I, I think it's important to keep those muscles limber. Having said that, you know, I, I'm not entirely convinced that you need to be writing in final draft software in order to do that. Um, when you and I work on our uh, pitch documents for new show ideas, um, I think that the most important muscles to keep limber are the ones that we're actively using in those exercises, right? When we're breaking the pilot story for um, a show we're developing, we are exercising our story muscles. And the same thing when we're figuring out what the series journeys are for the different characters. Um, when it comes to the, to the muscles you use when you're actually writing, you know, the internal dialogue of a scene, yeah, I think that's important. Um, you know, I, I personally don't find it as crucial to um, constantly work those muscles because um, I just find when you sit down to write, if you're really... Um, connected to the characters and what the characters care about, then, you know, the dialogue comes. Um, but I think story is just, it's, it's so hard and it's always just as hard um, as it was the last time you did it. Um, and so I think you have to constantly be at it and, and, you know, um, like, you know, exercising any other muscle. If you don't, it'll, it'll start to die. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and, you know, I, I think the, um, the the other thing is, you know, as we've talked about offline, that one of the maddening and fascinating changes that's happened to the business is um, there are so many people buying shows and so many people selling and writing shows that, you know, there are network executives who used to go home not that many years ago with three or four scripts to read for the weekend, um, and now they go home with 25 or 30. Mm. And we're told by, you know, our friends and our agents that um, it's almost impossible to get people to read a script when it's got, you know, a, a movie star and or a famous director attached to it, let alone when it's just something you wrote because you wanted to keep your muscles limber. So I think for me, it, it you know, it probably throws a little bit of cold water on the, the hunger I used to feel to just write, 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 and, you know, constantly turn out scripts, which I did used to do. Um, and now I, I just find it more... Um, stimulating and more satisfying um, to kind of, you know, work on my story muscles through the development of new ideas. I think, mm -hmm. uh, you know, it's for me, I've always considered myself, um, you know, part writer, part entrepreneur. And the, the, the thing I love about development is it allows you to um, enjoy both of those things at the same time. Do you keep a journal? No, I don't. And if I did, I wouldn't show it to you anyway. So <laughs> please stop crying. Uh, yeah, it, I mean, a lot of writers I really respect do that just to keep the muscles, you know, strong. Um, because I, you know, I think you're completely right that uh, I may be thinking about it in the wrong way. I, I may be thinking about you know writing dialogue and and writing character as as what keeps the muscle strong. But I think you're right that writing story in the form of pitch documents and emails we send back and forth to each other and. Um, that sort of thing is 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 also working the the screenplay teleplay muscle. Um, yeah, it's like you and I having our own little you know mini writers room, right. um, and it doesn't mean you're thinking about it the wrong way. I I, I should just you know really clarify that that I'm talking about um, what works for me, mm -hmm. and um, I find that that I I really struggle much more mightily 
um, to, you know, get those muscles back into shape if I haven't been using them for a while. So um, for me, as a, for my craft, the most important thing that I think I need to do is just be um, breaking story, breaking story, thinking about structure, um, thinking about themes, thinking about finding the emotion in the character's journey um, constantly. Right. And, uh, and, you know, that's what helps me stay fresh. So in sort of a similar vein, you know, you and I write a lot of... Um... Uh, historical projects. And I often get really lost in the weeds. You know, I get really excited by by the real history, you know, that I uncover on page, you know, 400 of some book. I find a little nugget and get so incredibly excited about some piece of history. And I think often I do that at the expense of the drama. And you're just always reminding me to go back to the relationships among the characters. Um, I'm just curious, is that is that something that you feel like you picked up, you know, doing Royal Pains for eight years? Um, did you consciously learn that? Or do you think that's just sort of, you know, sort of uh, hardwired into you that, that the relationships among characters, that's the source of drama. That's what you're always looking for. Well, again, I, I don't think it's, you know, a binary choice with a right and wrong. I think that's one of the reasons that you and I um, complement each other so well and love working together. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know, I think we, we are both capable of both of those things, but I think you're certainly much um, stronger than I am with um, finding the history and understanding the history and um, mining the history for its most um, valuable elements. Um, and, you know, I think um, what that needs to be met with is um, taking the history and making sure that you can distill it into um, really fruitful story. Right. Um, so, uh, you know, I think... Um, I think the 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 Hoover project I think is you know um, a good example. Mm-hmm. There were so many things that you brought to my attention that um, I never knew happened that I never could have imagined had actually happened, and that's an incredibly valuable place to start from. You know, it's it's a huge head start when you're given history to use as a roadmap. Um, but, uh, you know, I think if people want history, then, you know, they'll pick up a book or watch documentary. For us, the challenge is then how do you take that and how do you make it, you know, irresistibly compelling? How do you make it, um, you know, driven by a few central characters rather than, um, you know, the seemingly infinite, infinite number of characters who's, who tend to weave themselves through the um, nonfiction historical narratives that we find in, in these books. Um, and uh, And that's kind of, you know, um, I think bringing the best of, of both worlds together. Yeah, totally agree. Um, all right. So we've kept you a while here. So, um, I want to finish up by talking about, uh, speaking of, uh, irresistibly, um, entertaining. Was that your phrase? Um, I want to, uh, I asked you for your favorite scene from, or a favorite scene from any movie or TV show that you didn't write. Uh, that you'd want to discuss in terms of craft. So you picked a scene from The American President. Um, It's a long clip, and it's entirely a monologue. Uh, But like you, I think it's about as good as dramatic writing gets, so I want to play it in full. Um, It needs a little bit of setup, since it's in the third act. So the President of the United States, played by Michael Douglas, has just been dumped by his girlfriend, Sidney Allen Wade. Uh, She's a lobbyist. Uh, Basically, he sold her out politically, and she dumped him. Now, separately for the entire movie, the president has been hesitant to take on his rival in the upcoming election, Senator Bob Rumson. So when this scene begins that we're going to play, the president has shocked everyone by making a surprise appearance in the White House press room. He's just taken the podium. And lastly, so that this sinks in, throughout the movie, the president's adversary, Senator Rumson, has had a catchphrase. He says, my name is Bob Rumson and I'm running for president. So just remember that. Um, okay, let's play the clip. Now, Aaron, oh, yeah, please. am I going to stop you for commentary as we go, or are we going to watch the whole thing? <laughs> um, if you have the chutzpah to interrupt Aaron Sorkin, you know, I, I dare you. Well said. I'll talk to you in four minutes and 49 seconds. <laughs> okay. For the last couple of months, Senator Rumson has suggested that being president of this country was to a certain extent about character. And although I've not been willing to engage in his attacks on me, I've been here three years and three days. And I can tell you without hesitation, being president of this country is entirely about character. For the record, yes, I am a card-carrying member of the ACLU. But the more important question is, why aren't you, Bob? Now, this is an organization whose sole purpose is to defend the Bill of Rights. So it naturally begs the question, 
Why would a senator, his party's most powerful spokesman and a candidate for president, choose to reject upholding the Constitution? Now, if you can answer that question, folks, then you're smarter than I am, because I didn't understand it until a few hours ago. America isn't easy. America is advanced citizenship. You've got to want it bad, because it's going to put up a fight. It's going to say, you want free speech? Let's see you acknowledge a man whose words make your blood boil, who's standing center stage and advocating at the top of his lungs that which you would spend a lifetime opposing at the top of yours. You want to claim this land is the land of the free? Then the symbol of your country cannot just be a flag. The symbol also has to be one of its citizens exercising his right to burn that flag in protest. Now show me that, defend that, celebrate that in your classrooms. Then you can stand up and sing about the land of the free. I've known Bob Rumson for years, and I've been operating under the assumption that the reason Bob devotes so much time and energy to shouting at the rain was that he simply didn't get it. Well, I was wrong. Bob's problem isn't that he doesn't get it. Bob's problem is that he can't sell it. We have serious problems to solve, and we need serious people to solve them. And whatever your particular problem is, I promise you, Bob Rumson is not the least bit interested in solving it. He is interested in two things, and two things only, making you afraid of it and telling you who's to blame for it. That, ladies and gentlemen, is how you win elections. You gather a group of middle-aged, middle-class, middle-income voters who remember with longing an easier time, and you talk to them about family and American values and character. And you wave an old photo of the president's girlfriend and you scream about patriotism. You tell them she's to blame for their lot in life. And you go on television and you call her a whore. Sidney Ellen Wade has done nothing to you, Bob. She has done nothing but put herself through school, represent the interests of public school teachers, and lobby for the safety of our natural resources. You want a character to debate, Bob? You better stick with me. Because Sidney Ellen Wade is way out of your league. I've loved two women in my life. I lost one to cancer. And I lost the other because I was so busy keeping my job, I forgot to do my job. Well, that ends right now. Tomorrow morning, the White House is sending a bill to Congress for its consideration. It's White House Resolution 455, an energy bill requiring a 20% reduction of the emission of fossil fuels over the next 10 years. It is by far the most aggressive stride ever taken in the fight to reverse the effects of global warming. The other piece of legislation is the crime bill. As of today, it no longer exists. I'm throwing it out. I'm throwing it out and writing a law that makes sense. You cannot address crime prevention without getting rid of assault weapons and handguns. I consider them a threat to national security and I will go door to door if I have to, but I'm gonna convince Americans that I'm right and I'm gonna get the guns. We've got serious problems and we need serious people. And if you want to talk about character, Bob, you better come at me with more than a burning flag and a membership card. If you want to talk about character and American values, fine. Just tell me where and when and I'll show up. This is a time for serious people, Bob, and your 15 minutes are up. My name is Andrew Shepard and I am the president. Oh my God, <laughs> so good. Do you have goosebumps? Yeah. Um, so, you know, it's interesting what you said right before you played the clip about, um, you know, it may be seeming like a slightly unusual choice in that it is a four minute and 49 second, um, single character monologue. Um, I think is exactly what just blows me away about it. It, it, I mean, I defy you to show me, um, any other five minute speech where you're literally, you know, emotionally on the edge of your seat, um, through every single word. And what's amazing about it is when I catch it on TV, um, it's on often, and I've seen it probably 600 times at this point. Um, and I always just, I will sit with the movie, no matter where I, I catch it, I will sit and wait until the scene comes. Um, and it, it, it stuns me that it, it 
makes me well up with emotion every single time, every time. I watch it. Every single time. Yep. And it's it's Michael Douglas is spellbinding, but it the writing is um is magnificent. It's 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 musical. Um and it just swells and um and subsides in all the right places. Um and you know first of all how 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 striking to see how many of those lines are so relevant right now yeah um, seriously it's really hard later. it's really hard to listen to it without thinking about the age of trump right now and how Completely. just incredibly depressing it is i mean obviously you know this was written in a time um where you know this was sort of the the better version of of what we all wanted bill clinton to be but you know clinton was at least in the same hemisphere as this character the you know trump is uh, the idea that he could put you know three articulate sentences together, let alone a five-minute monologue, is absurd. And suddenly, this feels feels like a much different kind of podcast. Um, <laughs> Sorry about that. No, absolutely. <laughs> Listen, um, we could speak for hours on on that alone. But what I will say is that um, there is just you know I think a timeless appeal to the way he presents himself, um, his presidentialness. Um, the, the, this character is the president that you know. We all, I think, um, would love to have, or certainly I would love to have, um, and that hasn't changed in, in 22 years. Right. Um, and it's also, it's so much more than just about, you know, I, I wonder how many times Sorkin wrote this or rewrote this in his head, if not on paper, because this isn't at all partisan. I mean, he brings up the gun debate, which, you know, of course, is, is, is on the tip of all of our tongues right now. Um, but this speech, more than anything else to me, is about a guy going up there and defending his girlfriend from a bully. Um, and that is part of what's so incredibly emotional that he's the president of the United States and he's going up there and he's, you know, he's standing up for what's right in the world, but this is a love letter to his girlfriend. I think that's a hundred percent true. It's well said. And I think it's also about him finally finding his courage and his conscience. Um, you know, so, so we've talked about the writing. Let's move on to the directing by our friend, Mr. Reiner. Um, cause you know, as we were talking about, um, with the Hank Nicky breakup scene in Royal Pains, not that I would ever dare to compare this scene to that scene, um, for any other reason other than to say, um, you know, I, I, I also find that this scene for me, when I watch it and dissect it, is really more about every. It, it's about everything but um, what the hero is doing. Um, <laughs> from a directorial standpoint, I mean, the, the choices that Rob makes in terms of the cutaways um, do such amazing things yes. um, to to serve both you know the scene and the story. Um, you know that cutaway to Michael J. Fox when um, when Andrew Shepard says the line. Um, I'm throwing out the crime bill. No, no, no. It's it's before that. It's right after Michael J. Fox has sort of just entered the room, mm-hmm. um, and uh, Michael Douglas says, um, "Bob Brumson's problem isn't that he doesn't get it. His problem is that he can't sell it." And you see Michael J. Fox kind of just, you know, toss a glance Martin Sheen's way. And what I get from that look is that he's thinking, "Jesus Christ." My job is to write the lines, and in a million lifetimes, I can never have written that line myself. <laughs> right, right. He plays the speechwriter, right. Yep. yep. And, and, you know, there's a scene earlier in the movie where they really go toe-to-toe, and you feel Michael J. Fox's character try and start to assert this moral authority over the president um, and feel like he knows something the president just doesn't get. And this is the moment where he realizes this guy, this president, operates on a level that I can't even fathom. Right. No, you're so right. And, you know, for, for people who, who haven't seen the movie, and I, I bet you most of my students have not seen this movie because this came out, you know, when they were little kids, if, if they were even born, um, you know, the, the, in the president's entire senior staff. So Michael J. Fox, um, Samantha Mathis, um, Martin Sheen, who plays his chief of staff, they all come in and, um, they're all sort of just watching him in awe. And that really, really, you know, I'm absolutely positive that that's part of Sorkin's script. I mean, Rob directed it beautifully, but watching our friends watch Michael Douglas, adds such a gravitas to what he's saying. There's no question. And, you know, um, I don't know if this was in the script as well. You might be right. Um, that he wrote the, um, you know, the, the, the reactions to this level of specificity, but the press, um, you know, I think even back then we were so used to sort of, you know, the jaded press corps that sits there every day in the White House briefing room, and they've seen it all, and they've heard it all, and, you know, um, nothing shocks their conscience. And there's the moment where um, the president starts talking about the way you win elections. 
And if you look at those cutaways, you look at those reporters, uh, I think there are, there are three reporters. Um, there's a white guy, a black guy, and a woman. And the looks on their faces suddenly change. And all of a sudden, they look like 10-year-old children. <laughs> and like the world is being explained to them for the first time. And it, again, just shows you um, the 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 power of this man's um, vision and insight that he just understands humanity in a way that the rest of us don't. And it just puts him on an even large, larger pedestal than he's already on. Right. No, couldn't agree more. Um, and so, uh, you know, I don't know if I've, if, if, if I've talked about this before on the podcast, but so you and I have now worked with, with Rob uh, Reiner, you know, on a couple different projects. Um, certainly, you know, I, I've told you this, but probably my favorite week ever as a as a, a TV writer was the week that you and I, and Rob um, and Rob's partner Alan Graceman went and pitched the tap because, you know, we went to what was it five or six different networks in the span of um, I think four days, and um, that meant that there was a lot of downtime because we'd have a pitch at you know 10 a.m. and a pitch at 3 p.m. and so between the pitches we would go to lunch, we would get coffee, whatever. And so you and I use that opportunity to just pump Rob for stories. Um, you know, he's directed uh, probably the same for you, but certainly some of my favorite movies of all time, including The American President, you know, A Few Good Men, When Harry Met Sally. And so we just heard so many great stories from him. Um, and one of them was was about this project. Um, so, you know, for, for people who don't know, this project started out when Rob uh, Robert Redford brought it to uh, Reiner and said, you know, he wanted to do a love story uh, that took place in the White House. And at some point, you know, Redford fell out. I think Rob probably brought Sorkin on because Sorkin had just written um, A Few Good Men for Rob. Um, and Sorkin ended up handing in uh, a 350-page script. Um, most scripts, you know, you think about a page a minute, so most scripts are about, you know, 100 to 120 pages. Um, Rob then worked with Sorkin to trim it down to, I think the finished script was about 180 pages, basically excising everything in it that wasn't about the love story between the president and the lobbyist. And that extra 150 to 200 pages that Sorkin cut eventually morphed into becoming the West Wing pilot, which is just an incredible story to me. Yeah, and of course, the amazing irony, you know, as it pertains to this scene, is that the chief of staff, played by Martin Sheen, who walks into that room, now you, you look at him, especially against this backdrop, and you can only think of him as the president from the West Wing. Right. Um, it's funny to watch him walk into that room and stand against the wall and watch someone else give um, the briefing to, to the press corps. Really um, the great postscript for me to that story is... Um, when Rob was invited to join them in turning those um, excess pages into, in my view, um, the best series of all time, um, Rob declined because he felt that he had already told that story and he'd already explored that world. Um, to which I remember we said, wow, you must really regret that. And he looked at us like we were fucking crazy. He right. said, of course I don't regret it because I had already told that story and I had already explored that world. And that's what makes Rob Reiner, Rob Reiner. Totally. No, couldn't agree more. Um, and, and, you know, also just the fact that, you know, Sorkin was, you know, he was Sorkin at this point and that he had already written A Few Good Men and Malice and, you know, a couple other things, but he wasn't, you know, the, the giant of screenwriting that we think of today. And Rob kept a five-page monologue in the movie. Can you imagine if you or I put a five-page monologue in the middle of a script? We get run out of town. I mean, seriously, it's, 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 I, I, I'm so curious. We should ask him what, um, you know, Michael Douglas's reaction was to needing to memorize a five-page monologue. I wonder how many days they shot it over. Um, this is, this, you know, it's a, it's a weird, huge undertaking, this scene. Yep. And listen, that's not to say that, that uh, people didn't um, come after the, uh, the scene with, you know, with their guns and knives and um, Rob being Rob probably defended it, um, you know, with his last breath. So right. thank God he did. It is just, it's one of the great speeches in film history for me. Yeah, seriously. I, I was sitting here just with goosebumps um, the whole time. Um, all right. Well, we are, this is now the longest podcast uh, we've ever done. Yes. Uh, I'm getting dirty looks from people. So uh, thank you for doing this. This was super awkward and weird and talking to you over a microphone, but um, it was also really fun. Uh, I couldn't have had a better time. Thank you, Aaron. Thank you, Ryan. And I look forward to seeing you in Westwood next week, right? Uh, very, 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 very soon, if not next week, soon after. 
Um, my love to uh, to the Yale community, the Yale campus. Uh, very, very fond nostalgia for our time spent there when you gave me a tour. That's right. Um, One of these days we'll get you up here again. I look forward to that. Um, thank you, guys. Thanks, dude. Bye. Talk to you soon. Bye-bye. Andrew, um, not as awkward as I feared, but kind of weird to be talking to him. I mean, we talk, you know, pretty close to every day on the phone. So doing it in this formal setting as I'm sitting in the Yale broadcast studio talking into a microphone uh, felt kind of strange, but I thought it went all right. Uh, Hope you did too. Thanks to our producers here at the Yale Broadcast Center, Phil Kearney and Ryan McAvoy. If you dug the show, please do us a favor and subscribe and give it however many stars you think it deserves on iTunes. Um, you can hit me with questions or complaints on Twitter at Aaron D. Tracy or email me at Aaron.Tracy at Yale.edu. Um, go watch The American President and see you next week.